Dons fans, and welcome to the round 23 edition of Don the Stat. A nine-point win in North Melbourne's grand final on Saturday saw the Dons claw their way to ninth spot on the ladder and put destiny in our own hands with games against GWS and Collingwood to come over the final two rounds. I'm Jonathan Walsh, and I'm joined by... I'm Jonathan Walsh, and I'm joined in the Don the Stat studio by my co-host, Dan Hume. Hume, how are you, mate? Yeah, really good. You mentioned before the show that I was looking and sounding a lot better than I did last week, so I'll take that as a compliment um, and that I'm on the right track there. Uh, I'm getting really excited about this week. Uh, There's a huge opportunity to, you know, extend our season into September and, you know, give our younger players an opportunity in some of the highest uh, stakes football that there is. How about yourself? Yeah, much the same, mate. Um, definitely pleased to see you on the mend and, and sounding and looking a lot better than you have been in, in recent weeks. Um, that that's that's really, really good news. But yeah, I'm I mean, hope and excitement's a dangerous thing as a Don's fan, isn't it? We've been burnt many, many times before. But I'm I'm looking forward to it too. We'll we'll touch on selection later, but we get a couple of important players back this week. And you know, we're we're playing against a, a GWS side who uh, you know, probably similar to us, have had some really good wins this season, had some really disappointing losses. And, and I know they did get on a bit of a winning run, but they, they like us, have struggled for a bit of consistency at times as well. So, uh, and, you know, been touched up by some really good sides like they, they were against Port Adelaide last week. So, yeah, it's a game that, uh, you know, I think we can, we're going to need to be at our best. But but if we do bring that, then we give ourselves an opportunity, as you said, to to extend our season and, and keep the hope rolling for another week. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to to sitting on the couch come Saturday and, and watching it. Yeah, me too. Uh, before we get started tonight, I want to say thanks to Robert Sapamom, who has signed up to a seven-day free trial of our Patreon. Uh, with the end of the season coming up, hopefully a few more weeks than just two. Um, but we are planning on doing another Patreon Q&A session whenever that season does finish. Uh, that episode was probably the one we did mid-season, probably the most fun we've had recording an episode all year. And the patrons that did participate in that all asked great questions that generated a lot of really good discussion. So if that's something you'd like to get involved with when the time comes, you can sign up now through the link in the description. Yeah, well said, mate. That was a lot of fun. It was a global event too. We had uh, listeners and supporters of the show from Sweden and from um, from the US and, and as I've said before, the People's Republic of WA. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a great event and, and we appreciate everyone who was involved in that and has continued to be involved uh, you know, with the podcast either as a Patreon or, or just as a supporter and part of the community. Yeah. Uh, we'd also like to give a shout out to a member of the Don's fan community, Scott McNeese from the Lunchtime Catch-Up podcast. He's going through a bit of a, a tricky medical situation at the moment, or it does sound like he is on the improve and, and just want to say, hope you get better soon. Yeah, here, here, mate. Uh, it sounds like a, he's having a rough time of it. So all the best, Scott. Hope you're back on your feet and back on the microphone soon. Yeah. Well, look, let's get into the North Melbourne game. You said it was their grand final. That was their second chance at winning a grand final this year. And for the 10th time in a row, they've, they've lost that grand final. Uh, last time they beat us was back in 2016 in the, the top-ups year. So it hasn't been a great run for North. But, you know, from another point of view, it was another close game for Essendon against a bottom two side. Uh, despite that, though, I thought it was a much better performance than the game we had against West Coast. And we were coming up against the North Melbourne side that – the one area that is a real strength for them, which is in areas around the stoppage, is, is an area that we have struggled with. Uh, and so that probably explains a lot of where North Melbourne are able to keep up with us, whereas other teams are able to put them away a bit more. And also they obviously had the emotion of Benny Cunnington's last game to drive them. And as we saw early with their reaction to his goal, that was definitely a big motivation for them. 
So as always, let's look into our key points from last week and how we went about that. And we did highlight that North were going to come hard, both because they they like to play and beat Essendon and also because of Cunnington. Um, we really wanted to weather that early storm and, and see that out and start to get the game on our own terms. Yeah, I have to admit when Cunnington kicked that goal early in the game, I was a little bit concerned. Uh, you know, as a, as a football purist, you're obviously really happy to see him do that. He's been through a lot. Uh, in regards to his health to get back and play football was a hell of an achievement. But from a, an Essen fan's perspective, you know, I probably would have preferred to see him kick that goal late in the last quarter when we were 60 points up rather than, you know, the second goal of the game. They, you know, they they came out all, all guns blazing, didn't they? They did kick the first two goals, the second of that one um, being the Cunnington one and, and took a five-point lead into quarter time. We did a reasonable job to to limit the damage, but we certainly didn't put our best foot forward. North had six of the first 10 inside 50s and eight of the first 12 clearances of the game. So they were just a little bit more physical uh, at the coalface and, and were able to, you know, to, to get some momentum and, and get the ball going their way. We did get on top. After that, though, Nick Martin scored our first, Cole Langford not long after. Both of those goals came from end-to-end transition, which has been a real strength from ours. So I think we did a good job of not playing into their hands by rushing to to try and get our way back into the game, but some real controlled possession and and taking the ball from one end to the other, I think was... um, it was a much more methodical way of going about it than than last week where we really just blazed away a fair bit or, or the week before against West Coast blazed away and and sort of played into West Coast hands a little bit. So I thought that um, that was an improvement in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Our next point was to win contested ball. Now, North are quite a good stoppage side, but once the ball gets out of that stoppage situation, they haven't been winning contested ball in those post-stoppage uh, situations. And we, we wanted to go at plus six a quarter. Now, we ended up at plus nine for the game. Now, that's a lot better than our season average, which is minus 0.5. Although, if you look at what North is conceding in terms of contested possession, that's about average for them, losing by nine. Although, if you do look back at when we played North Melbourne earlier in the season, we actually lost contested possession by 11. And that was a North side without some of their best contested possession wins in Luke Davies, Uniaki and Cunnington, who both played this time. So overall, while it was not quite to the level that we were hoping for on reflection, when you consider the the conditions and, and the players that North actually had, I still think it's a pretty good result there. Yeah, I, I haven't crunched the numbers on it, but I'd hazard a guess they haven't played that many games this season where they've had Cunnington, LDU, Simpkin, and, and even George Wardlaw, who's who's shown already in the early stages of his career that he's going to be a really uh, good, high-quality contested possession player. Uh, I, I don't think they've had too many games where they've had the four of them available to them, and, and we probably should have known better than to think a player like Ben Cunnington was going to let us have all his, you know, have all our own way in the contested ball stakes, particularly given that it was his last game. And, and we probably got a little bit reliant on a few. You know, Parrish did what? Parrish does and, and had his customary high numbers. Zach Merritt played a little bit more on the inside given that he was tagged. And, and you know, Ben Hobbs uh, did what Ben Hobbs has, has continued to do in, in the early stages of his career. So, you know, we, we had some, uh, you know, we, we got some drive out of those guys. And then I thought Nick Martin was worth the mention. He had 12 contested possessions and that's the most he's had since round 13. And I know we were all pleased to see him line up on the wing at the start of the game. He's been getting a bit lost playing at half forward. Uh, not that that's uh, normal for him. I think that's, you know, I think what we've actually lost, I was reflecting on this uh, a little bit post-game, we've lost the fact that Nick Martin's only in his second season and was probably due a bit of a form slump as well. He set such high standards for himself. So 
you know, I, I don't think we can blame it all just on on the role that he was playing and 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 him playing out of position. I think it's just natural for a second year player to to have a, a three or four week spell where where he's a little bit off the boil. But yeah, I, I, the other thing that happened more so in the second half and uh, and at various stages throughout the game was that he started as a half forward and then pushed up through the midfield and and what we did see again was his capability of playing in traffic and 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 I think you know I still maintain that that's the future for Nick Martin it's not as a wingman but it is as a a center bounce midfielder because he's his ability to to win a contested ball to get his arms up and over the contest and get the ball going our way and then his ability to hit targets in traffic we don't by foot I should add we just don't have a lot of those and and he's a really really good one so I, I think we saw a little bit of a preview albeit in a in a slightly different role of what Nick Martin can do as a midfielder in the future. Yeah. And look, speaking of Nick Martin, he obviously had a big role to play in terms of delivering the ball inside 50. And one of the targets we set for ourselves was generating 60 in plus inside 50s for ourselves and uh, keeping North to their season average of, of 46. And it's something we, we really hit almost right to the mark. So we generated right on 60 ourselves and we limited North to 48, which is, you know, just only two above their season average. It's It has been a challenge for us. And we've spoken a lot about how we've chosen to defend and how that's invited inside 50s. There's only been eight of our 22 games where we've kept our opponents to below their season inside 50 average. Um, and when we do concede more 50s than our opponent's average, it's at a rate of six per game. And when we restrict our opponents under their inside 50 average, it's a rate of three a game. So when our opponents are getting more inside 50s than their average, they're going at a lot higher rate than we are in terms of restricting when we do you know, get teams below their average. Yeah, it sounds pretty simple, mate, and it probably is. But the the more times you go inside fifty, and and the fewer times the opposition do, you uh, you know, the, obviously the the more chances you have of scoring, and the fewer your opposition do. Uh, when you know, you mentioned eight games where we've restricted our our opposition to below their season average for inside fifties. There's also only been the eight games this season where we've had more inside fifties than our opposition uh, in the game. And, and we're 7-1 in those games. And, and that one loss was to the Swans in round 20, which when we spoke about when we reviewed that game, uh, you know, all the, the statistical KPIs suggested that that was a game that we probably should have won by five or six goals. So, um, yeah, we certainly didn't have any problems with scoring in that game. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a pretty simple metric, but it, but it also is a really valuable one. And, and if you can get more supply than your position, you, you generally go on and win the game. Again, we didn't make the opposition. Uh, sorry, didn't make the most of those opportunities. We scored just forty percent of the time. We did go inside fifty. We're missing a couple of our first choice forwards at the moment. You know, Peter Wright hasn't quite got to his best, and and he and Langford are still working out how to play together. So I'm not too concerned about that part of our game. We know because it's been mentioned by the players, and I think Brad Scott's talked about it as well that we really didn't work on our our ball movement or the offensive part of our game until a couple of weeks before the season started. So. Yeah, I'm I'm really not too fast. We we took 14 marks inside 50, which is four more than our season average. And and for some context, 14 probably doesn't sound like a lot, but Geelong are the number one team for marks inside 50 this season. They average 14.8 a game. So, uh, you know, for for the most part, it was it was pretty effective. We we probably just didn't make the most of the ground ball opportunities that we did have. Yeah, and that, that's sort of what we've got into in the past in talking about what the small forward options are are going forward there, and you know. 
speaking of being in the front half, we wanted to generate at least five goals from from forward half turners, turnovers. And we, we did that. We generated five goals, two from forward half turnovers. And if you compare that to last week against West Coast, where we found it really difficult to stop West Coast ball movement or restrict it, we only scored one goal, two from forward half turnovers. So again, like I said, when we started looking at this North game, you know, it was a much improved performance, even if the margins weren't that different. Yeah, we had 13 tackles inside 50. So, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a huge number, but our season average is 10.7. So we were north of that. And the Giants are number one in the conference inside 50 tackles at 13.5. So, you know, what we did was on par with the season average for the best in the business. Uh, we we ranked 10th in the comp. So, uh, you know, again, that that pressure inside 50 wasn't, wasn't the problem. It was a bigger problem when the ball came to ground. Uh, but uh, when the opposition had the ball, we did a reasonable, reasonably good job of of slowing down their transition and allowing them to exit. We scored 70 points from turnovers for the game, 32 points from forward half turnovers, which compared to just nine points last week. So, yeah, a, a big improvement on, on what we saw the week before. Yeah, and as I sort of said, going the other way, you know, we're much better at defending full, ga- full ground transition, only Three of North's goals came from turnovers in their defensive half compared with five uh, for West Coast last week. And we really seem to find a better balance of pressuring in the forward half to generate our own scores whilst not being over-attacking so that it was easy for the opposition to move the ball from one end to the other. Yeah, it was a lot better, mate. North Melbourne aren't the most skilled team in the competition. We all know that, but they still had three more turnovers than their season average. So we were able to put enough pressure on them to you know, to to turn the ball over a bit more than they normally do. They've been conceding 59 points a game from turnover this season. We scored 70 points on them from from their turnovers. So, you know, we were, uh, you know, two goals better uh, if we round up slightly than than what they've uh, teams have been performing against them in over the course of 2023, which I think is a pleasing sign. Uh, they they've been scoring 38 points a game from turnover themselves and and only scored 22. So I think that part of our game, uh, yeah, was was probably the the most pleasing part of it. Yeah, and and just touching on some key players we identified before the game, uh, obviously Luke Davies, Uniaki didn't play against us last time and he's really leading their way as their as their key midfielder and you know, if you look at his metrics, he had an around average game for disposals and clearance, but um it's probably more impactful than, than in most other games this year because he was getting a lot more ball forward to center. So he had 10 inside 50s, which is twice as many than his season average of 5 and, and his meters gained of 720 was his highest for the season. I mean, with that he also had five score involvements. Yeah, it was a bit of a, an interesting game through the midfield. Uh, LDU had a, a really good game and he's a really really good fo- footballer and I think his season averages probably need to be split in half a little bit. He, he had a slow start to the season and his form over more recent times has been really, really strong. Uh, with Merritt getting tagged, you know, he went and played a bit more of a defensive game as he does in in those sort of situations now. He, he had a team high tackles and, and pressure acts and, and did that by some margin. So it sort of came down really to who out of Parish and LDU could have the biggest impact on the game. And they had remarkably similar games, really. They... They both had 10 inside 50s and five score involvements. Parrish had three more clearances. LDU kicked the goal. Uh, They shared five coaches' votes each. So I I think, you know, over the course of the game, those two, uh, you know, went head-to-head at times and and probably broke even. And, uh, yeah, that was sort of the way it played out with with everything else that was happening around them. Yeah, and... The other player that we really focused on was Taron Thomas after having quite a good game against Melbourne the previous week. And he had similar disposal numbers, but 
I think his impact was a lot lower. He only had three onside fifties as opposed to seven the previous week and five clearances as opposed to 10. Although both of those numbers are above his season average. He did attend a higher amount of center bounces against us than he did against Melbourne though. So I think given that we were able to nullify what influence he had somewhat. Yeah. I know there was some Twitter talk about the great job that North did in, um, or Curtis Taylor did in, in tagging Zach Merritt and taking him out of the game. But I think what got lost in that is that, you know, we're, we're reasonably happy to allow Zach Merritt to, to get tagged and, and uh, gone are the days where he would just be taken completely out of the game and not be able to impact it. I touched already on, on his ability to tackle and pressure, but he was one that did go and put a fair bit of, of work into Thomas and, and made it a two-on-one contest, which made it a little bit uncomfortable for him and, and also confused things for, for Curtis Taylor. Uh, there was sort of a double impact on this, which I'm keen to touch on, but Hobbs was another one that also made a bit of a point of being physical with Thomas. So, uh, yeah, he got the ball, as you said, and and, and had some numbers that were relatively similar to, to his season average. But he went at 64% disposal efficiency, which is well below his season average of 75%. And just the 266 metres gained, which was, you know, down on his 350 average over the course of the season. And, and he didn't hit the scoreboard. He's a, a dangerous goal kicker. He kicked a couple against this first time out and, and didn't kick a goal in this game. So I thought it was it was good work by Zach. It, it, he had a, a quiet first quarter, but he got his hands on the footy after that. And, and because Curtis Taylor didn't start in the midfield, Whenever Zach went into the the center bounce, Taylor started forward and then went up post clearance. Zach went and played defensively, created those two on ones, and it actually allowed us to free up Mason Redmond behind the ball. And uh, yeah, I, I think North fans or Oriston fans who, who might be concerned about Zach's output probably need to look a little bit deeper because I think if you're Brad Scott and uh, you're really happy with the way that played out, uh, yep, Zach didn't have his 30 disposals and 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 high score involvements like he might normally, but it did allow us to to, you know, admit Curtis Taylor ran, effectively ran around in the midfield and only touched it 10 times. And it also meant that Zach was able to to nullify some of the impact that Tyrone Thomas was having whilst also allowing Mason Redmond to get a, a really good look in the game and, and, and be really effective. I think Mason Redmond was in the coaches' votes as well. Yeah, real sign of maturity and leadership from Merritt and a really good example for, you know, potentially, you know, a couple of years down the future, we may see Hobbs or Sardis receiving a tag and, and just sort of showing how you can still be involved and how you can still play a role even when your direct uh, influence on the game is nullified somewhat. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that. I, I think it's why we don't see a lot of hard tags anymore. Uh, you know, Zach's still got the ball 20-odd times. His opponent only got a 10. So he's still having a, a significant um, output compared to his direct opponent. And, and the plus on that is that it allowed Redmond to get plenty of it as well. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, some people might look at it uh, on a real simple measure and see Zach Merritt down on his output. But I think overall it, it was a, a net positive for us and a, and a, and a negative for North Melbourne. Yeah. Were there any final things about the North game you wanted to address before we move on? Yeah, I, I think, man, if we skip back to, to round one where we had a, a really good day out against the Hawks and we were all excited for what might lay ahead in, in season 2023, there were eight players that played in that game that didn't play against North, Wiedemann, Davey and Waller. And, you know, they're out of the side through through form. And, and you know, in, in Davey's case, he's, you know, probably not quite ready to have a, a big impact at AFL level. But uh, we've also got Setterfield, Shield, Ridley, Draper, Caldwell and Jones out through injury. Stringer didn't play that game and, and he's also out. So you kind of got... You know, six or seven guys there who would be in our uh, quote unquote best 22 that, that weren't available to play against North Melbourne. 
we've gained Peter Wright back, and and depending on your views of of Matt Guelfi, he's also come back into the side. He missed the first couple of games injured, so. You know, the reality is we're missing, you know, five, six, maybe seven, depending on how you view it, um, guys out of our best side. And, and you know, when you're talking about guys like Ridley and, and Draper you, and Stringer, you're talking about three of your your most important players. And then, you know, Setterfield, I think, is someone who's really important structurally, as is as is um, Harrison Jones. So uh, it's a fair bit missing. Um So, uh, yeah, I think we just have forgotten that we've lost sight. In, in that a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And what it has meant is that we had nine players under 50 games and, and a 21-year-old Archie Perkins playing game number 60. North Melbourne, you touched on it, had a relatively experienced midfield with, with well, really experienced with Goldstein and, and Cunnington and then Simkin, LDU and, and Thomas, who have been around for, for quite a while. And then, um, you know, some pretty good and, and informed bookends with Larky and McKay, who have been in the system now for, for seven or eight years. So, on paper, it was a game that was probably pretty even matched in terms of the 22 or 23 players that were out there for each side. And, and we were able to get on top in most parts of the game. Uh, I know that there might be some despondent Essendon fans wondering why we didn't get out of it with a 50, 60, 70 point win like other teams have done to North. But I just don't think we had the the, the cattle to be able to pull that off just at this stage. And, and no doubt I'd like us to be performing better at this point of the season than we are. But yeah, I just don't think we're ready to do that just yet. Not not without our some of our, our very very good players playing. And and the flip side is we got to see, uh, you know, you called it out on on Twitter, Brian Hobbs and Sardis and Perkins in the midfield together at, at centre bounces, which was really exciting and a, and a good glimpse at, at the the future. I think you you said they were in for two centre bounces together as a as a foursome and and won one of those two. And then we got to see. You know, the young midfielders in there in the last quarter, Brad Scott wasn't shying away from giving them responsibility. You know, Hobbs, Sardis and Perkins had plenty of centre bounce time in, in Q4 when the game was on the line. I thought Menzies stood up again and, and kicked some important goals, kicked another two goals to add to his, you know, really strong season tally. Baldwin showed some impressive signs down back as well. And, and we got another game into Cox who had some pleasing moments. So I think all said and done, the game it was a real positive one for us. They scored six goals from forward, 50 stoppages, and, and they've been averaging 1.2 goals a game from that source, and we've been conceding 1.5 a game. So it's been an area that hasn't really troubled us all that much this year uh, and not one that North have been overly effective at either. It was really the, the difference in the game. We spoke about the the scores from turnovers and and, and how effective we were there and how we limited them. Uh, forward, forward 50 stoppages was really where the game um, sort of was, was allowed to get close. And it's something that I think is pretty easily fixable. It was mostly young players that made errors against some senior North Melbourne midfielders. You know, Sardis at one point just got a don't argue from Cunnington and, yeah, I don't think we can really expect him in game two against the old bull to to stand up to then. He, he did ball watch and, and fall asleep against Simpkin for another. So, yeah, that it's not something that we should lose any sleep over um, and something I'm sure we'll address heading into this week given that our season is still alive. But I think all in all, there were a lot of really pleasing and positive side, um, signs out of that game albeit for from that uh besides that sort of forward 50 stoppage or, or defensive 50 stoppage for us uh part of it where we leak some goals yeah well well said look i think that's enough north talk for the year we've had to talk about them twice and i think it's time we've to move on there um what's been happening this week yeah i don't want to talk about north melbourne any more than i have to mate so i can c- concur with that one um the biggest 
Essendon news of the week was obviously that Dale Tapping is back at the club, having stepped away in June to to undergo cancer treatment, which was obviously really terrible news for for him and his family. Um, no doubt, uh, you know, th- there hasn't been a lot said about it, but I, I assume this is a really positive step for him in his treatment and, and his recovery. And and I'm sure um, everyone at the club is buoyed to have him back. Yeah, look, he seems well-loved. And, you know, I think a lot of the content they put out, you know, talking about what he's going through and, you know, just him talking about having to explain it to his teenage kids, I, you know, I found that heartbreaking. I was, you know... I, with some of my history um, and then um, having kids myself, you know, thinking about what that would be like and um, the fact that he's, he's worked really hard and obviously gone through a lot of treatment, uh, you know, it, it does take a lot out of you, but the fact that he's been able to get back out there and, and participate as a coach, um, I think hopefully that, that gives the players a real, you know, being a bit selfish about what that means. Hopefully that gives the players a bit of a, a boost going into the GWS game, you know, he, he's seeing what he's gone through and, you know, really think about, what they can go through and, and really push through in order to be successful. Yeah, I'm sure it will, mate. It, it, uh, footy clubs are, are real fishbowl environments and, you know, our form hasn't been great despite winning the last couple of weeks. We haven't been playing all that well and, you know, there's there's been guys out injured and, and all sorts of things going on. So I think to, to have some positivity back at the club, I think will be yeah a, a really good thing for everybody, and and I've got no doubt it will have some level of impact in in how the groups felt this week, and and you know hopefully that as you said it sort of transfers onto the field come Saturday. Um, beyond that, in terms of Essendon related news, it was the usual sort of innuendo and scuttlebutt around contracts and and trade targets, which you know we'll leave for another day. We'll sort of stick to the the on field stuff. So you know instead you've been digging into a player who's become a little bit contentious uh, across the fan base and and that's amplified again tonight uh, when the, the teams were announced. But uh, you've been having a, a bit of a close look at Jaden Laverde and the season he's had. Yeah, look, I feel like each week we're, we're playing Essendon player defence, um, you know, with, with some much maligned players. You know, I think last week on Twitter and the pod, you spent a lot of time talking about Darcy Parrish and what he actually brings to the side, you know, to talk about some of the, to counter some of the talk where people are saying that they're quite happy for him to go. And I think it's time for something similar with, as you said, a player that's copying a lot of heat in Jaden Laverde. Now, this is his third year as a full-time defender. And I think what tends to happen is that unless you're an absolute, you know, star like a Jordan Ridley, people tend to focus a little bit too much on a player's flaws and mistakes and not what they're actually producing, particularly when they get to a certain age. Um, so I looked at some of Laverde's key metrics for this year. Uh, and the one I explored in detail was one of the areas that you'd want from a key defender playing in that, those key roles. And that's the ability to win or halve one-on-one contests. Now, champion data keeps a lot of their their good stuff behind, you know, the champion data paywall. But one of the good things we do have access to is the ability to track contested defensive one-on-ones. So just to define what that means, a one-on-one is when a play, a ball is kicked to a two-person contest, so the target and the defender, and then each player has a reasonable chance to win that contest. So, you know, a, a wrestle or, you know, players are right next to each other. If a player is a couple of metres off another player, it's, it's not a contested one-on-one. So a loss is registered when a player in the contest concedes the possession of the ball to the opponent. So, for example, uh, let's say I, I used this example last night. Uh, we're playing the Western Bulldogs. Bontempelli's got the ball and he kicks it towards a contest where it's it's Norton and Ridley. They've, they've engaged in a bit of a wrestle. Um, if Norton marks the ball in that situation, that's counted as a loss for Ridley in that sense. So it was a contested one-on-one. They both had a reasonable opportunity to win the ball. And because Norton takes a contested mark, that's a loss to Ridley. 
Uh, it's considered neutral when the ball is spoiled or there's a stoppage resulted from the contest. Um, and it's a focus on the defender and, and the role that they play in that contest. Yeah, that's a good explanation, mate. But after that, if you're still unsure, Ian's put together a bit of a video explainer, uh, which you can find on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash on the start. Uh, we'll also put it in the show notes, but it's available to everybody. You don't have to be a signed up member. It goes for about four minutes and, and Ian's put together a couple of video clips from the North game that, that explain what you know, is or gives an example of what is a, a contested defensive one-on-one uh, loss versus what isn't. So, yeah, it, it, if you're still unsure but you you want to be able to follow what Ian's about to talk through, then it might be worth just hitting the pause button and and having a quick squeeze at the video if you can. Um, but, yeah, otherwise, Jimmy, talk us through it. Yeah, so let's talk about Essendon's contested defensive one-on-ones this season. If you take the top four players who have been in contested defensive one-on-ones, they are... Brandon Zerk-Thatcher, who's been involved in 69 contests. Uh, Jordan Ridley's been involved in 41. Jane Laverty, 38. And Andrew McGrath, 18. So they're the top four Essendon defenders that have been involved in one-on-one contests. From there, you then look at how many times of outright loss, and then you turn that into a contested defensive loss percentage. So the rate that a player is losing one-on-one contests as a defender. Now, after I looked at this, I put up a Twitter poll on, on Tuesday night to ask people uh, who they thought had the lowest loss percentage out of that top four. Uh, most people suggested Andrew McGrath was the best in contested situations. We, he had 35% of the vote. Uh, Zerk, Thatcher and, and Ridley both had mid-20s, and then Laverty was last with 14% of the vote. And I was very happy with that result because it uh, sort of played into what I want to talk about now. So across the 2023 season so far, when you look at those main defenders for Essendon who have played this year, and, and that includes players like Redman and and Kelly there, uh, no one has lost less defensive one-on-one contests than Laverde in terms of percentage. So he's at a 21.1% loss rate. So basically what that means is every five contests he's involved with, he's only losing one. Now, Ridley and McGrath are just above him. They're, they're at 22%. And Zerk Thatcher is on 30.4%. So he loses the most contests of the, out of the top four. The big surprise for me, actually, given his reputation, was actually Jake Kelly had the worst loss rate. So he was losing 35% of his one-on-one contests. Now, just to defend Zerk Thatcher, you know, he's usually getting the opposition's most challenging forward. If you think Hawkins, Allen, you know, Larky last week. So you imagine his percentage would be higher because he is playing on those more challenging players. But then if you compare what Laverty's done this year to what he's done over these last couple of years as a defender, this is his best year in terms of that loss percentage. So last year, he lost 36.1% of his one-on-one contests, whilst in, in 2021, he was at 23.1%. So in terms of his contested work as a defender, he's actually having his best year out of the three he's played as a defender. Okay. So just to quickly recap, we've got Laverde, who has the best loss rate. So 21% of the time he loses out in a one-on-one contest. Ridley and McGrath are both on 22. So they're second and third. And then Cirque Thatcher is, you know, trailing at 30.4. And and I think for a key defender, he's ranked sort of third or fourth for the most uh, contested um, one-on-one losses over the course of the season. Uh, And then Jay Kelly fifth on 35%. So just give us a little bit of context on how that stacks up against some of the other defenders in the competition. Yeah. So if if you were to think about some of the best defenders in the competition, this is the sort of loss rates they're having. So Sam Taylor, obviously coming up against with GWS, he loses 12.1% of his contested defensive contest. So just ahead, thinking ahead, I think that's something to consider when we look at Peter Wright's game this week coming up. 
Uh, Jacob Wiedering is 10.3% from 68 contests. And then Stephen May is, is 6.4% from 72 contests. The best I found was actually Ryan Lester from uh, Brisbane Lions. He's he's only losing 7% of his one-on-one contests. He's, he's been a real key plank for them back there this year. It's also important to note that those percentages are dependent on a variety of factors as to how the team defends the ground. If sides are good at getting a third man up, for example, then the, the contest isn't going to count towards this statistic. So better organised defences might have less of those contested defensive one-on-ones. But also if you look at some other statistical you know, Marcus Laverde is also having a really good year by his standards. His defensive half pressure acts are at six per game, and that's up from 5.5 last year and 5.7 the year before. He's going at three and a half spoils a game, and that's up from 3.2 and, and three in the previous years. And then going the other way, he's at 2.8 score involvements a game, and that's up from 2.1 in 22 and, and 1.5 in 21. If you're looking for an area where maybe he's gone back a bit, you know, he's dropped away a little bit in his intercept marking. He's averaged uh, two for the past couple of years. And and this year it's only 1.6. So it's not, it's not positive across the board, but there's a lot of defensive metrics where he's actually doing really well compared to his last two years. And, you know, people were really positive about him, particularly back in 2021. He's having a better year than he did in 2021 from those perspectives. So I think it doesn't, it's easy to point to people's poor games. It's easy to point to, you know, a missed kick or a lost contest and, and get frustrated with a player. But, you know, statistically, it's not really playing out that he that he's having a poor year. Um, now, that's not to say he's, he's irreplaceable because there's almost no one in the side that is irreplaceable and, you know, other players can come into better form and take his spot. Just that, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are wanting to, you know, get him out of the side and, and you know, not, not play him again. And I, I just think that's really premature and, yeah, I, as I said, I think there's a reason why he's still on the side, and I think I've gone through a few of those reasons tonight. Yeah, that was really thought well thought out, mate, and well explained. I guess the the two things that don't quite come across in that data and, and is hard to do and hard to capture is uh, are the times where our defenders or, or any defender is exposed because of a, a lack of pressure in the midfield, which I think for us has been better this year. It's still a long way to go, but it's certainly better than it was in, in 2022. And then also when a defender, uh, you know, makes a poor decision or or trails his opponent and therefore doesn't turn a, a contest into a one-on-one and is just beaten on on the lead. Um, so, yeah, but admittedly, we, we haven't captured that in, in this, but I think you've done a good job of, of maybe pointing out that that perhaps he hasn't had a, as poor a year as, as maybe some people um, might might be thinking. He, he certainly had his ups and downs this season and, and it, it does seem that he's a player that we've judged a little bit more harshly than, than perhaps we should have. I think we we asked a hell of a lot of him last year and and in 2021 as well and he's held up pretty admirably. But granted, for a lot of 2021, he had a, a fair bit of help from James Stewart. But I think Clangers is the other interesting marker to take a look at because I think he's had some moments this season where we've been really frustrated at his mistakes. But again, I think he, he's like some players on our list where we see one or two mistakes a game and we attach everything that he does to that um so you know let's let's call it Dar- darcy parish itis i think um jane laverde suffers from a little bit of that as well and and clangers is a, a bit of a catch-all for glaring mistakes right it's a it's a kick or a handball that goes straight to an opposition so it's not judged as as 
critically is a turnover where you can kick the ball to to a one-on-one it gets spoiled and the opposition win the ball uh, and it's classified as a turnover not necessarily a bad kick a, a clanger has to just go directly to the opposition uh it, it's a free kick against and or a 50 meter penalty or, or just an error under no pressure such as a, a bad fumble or, or a drop mark which he's certainly been guilty of a couple of times this year and and i, I will add it at some critical moments uh, as well but he averages 1.7 a game which is less than red who you know? I think most fans love and adore. Who averages two point five? Hind, who we know makes some mistakes, it averages two clangers a game. BZT and, and Heppel a little bit more at two point zero five a game, and and McGrath is just below Laverde at one point six. So it, you know, in, in terms of our defenders, he's probably not making as many glaring mistakes as as some of the others, um, which you know I think is was also worth uh, just touching on. Yeah. But also part of that with clangers is how risky a kick are you taking and, and how damaging are you trying to be? And I guess there's an argument that he's not really trying to be as damaging as some other players, but you don't need every player to be taking the game on every time you want. Sometimes you want to be able to set the ball up and, you know, really work over an opponent rather than try and, you know, slice them up. So I think he's, as I said, I think he's playing a, a role and I think he's playing having a good impact in that defensive. And part of that is forming that that core group that, that can play together and, and know when to support each other as well. I guess the other thing that, you know, looking at that contested data for defenders, and I sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think it really tells you how difficult it is to play against the best defenders. And, you know, I know many of us are concerned about, you know, when Peter Wright doesn't mark the ball in a contested situation. But if you look at contested defensive loss rates, you know, when you're playing, when you're a forward playing against the best defenders, you know, you're lucky if you're taking one or two marks out of every 10 contested situations that you're in. So if you're taking three a game in a situation, you'd be close to the best forward in the comp. So Wright's currently averaging 1.2 marks a game in, in terms of contested marks that that's above players like Ben King and Nick Larky. Now last season that number was 1.86. So there has been a bit of a drop off, but hopefully without an interrupted season, he can get back up towards that in 2024. Yeah. You got to wonder how much confidence he does or do- doesn't have in his shoulder at the moment that that might be affecting that a little bit, but yeah, it, it, to, until you said that, I, I hadn't looked at it from a forwards lens. But but you're right. Even if you're playing on on Jaden Laverde, you're you're only taking a contested mark three out of ten times. Right. So, um, sorry, Zerk um, Thatcher. Um, I should say not Laverde. So, um, so yeah, forwards do have a, a bit more of a, a a difficult job because for them a, a win contest is a mark, whereas a, for a defender it's just not letting the opposition mark it. So, yeah, uh, that was really good stuff, mate. I, I enjoyed that. Thank you for for going through that. Um, let's um, let's move on from there and take a look at the Giants, shall we? We, we do have a, an opponent this week that we should dig into. That's right. Uh, look, we'll start with going back to our previous game against the Giants back in round four, where Essendon 11-22-88 defeated GWS 11-9-75. Uh, one of those games where you, you dominate everywhere except on the scoreboard. It was an accuracy that really cost the Bombers. Three goals, 13 in the first half, ended with Essendon trailing at the main break, but then was a five-goal run at the end of the third and the start of the fourth that, that saw the Bombers get a match-winning lead and hold it for the rest of the game. So clearances were even, but Essendon had 11 more inside 50s, 19 more contested possessions, 11 more intercepts, and, and nine more tackles. So statistically, it was a really you know strong game from us. Uh, and then if you look at the individual efforts, so Jake Stringer had 10 scoring shots for the day. Only four of those were goals, unfortunately. Uh, if you look at the Giants, uh, they had three from Harry Himmelberg and, and then Ward, Kelly, and, and Toby Green had two each. Uh, Darcy Parrish led the way for Essendon. He had 30 disposals, seven clearance, 
and seven score involvements, um, whilst Merritt and Shield both had 28 disposals each. And then Tom Green was the real standout for the Giants. He had 35 disposals and, and five clearances, and he's a big challenge for us coming up this week. Yeah, I think it's a game that serves as a really good blueprint for for this week. We'll touch on it, uh, I think, a couple of times throughout. But we won the ball at the contest. It was only early in the season, but as it's now played out, uh, heading into round 23, we were plus 16 on our season average for contested ball that day, and the Giants were minus 11 on their season average. So, uh, you know, we, we won the, the game there, and, and then because of that, we were able to take territory. We had 61 inside 50s and, and slowed down their ball movement and exposed them on turnover. The scores from turnover were 65 to 30 in our favour. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot that we need to take out of that game because it really did show us a way that we can we can beat the Giants this week. Uh, but that was a while ago, mate. What's been happening with the Giants since then? Yeah, it's been over four four months then. And the Giants, as you sort of said earlier, they've had a season that's had a series of peaks and troughs, much like we have. And I guess if you go to the where they were sitting at the bye, they were at six wins and eight losses when they had their bye in round 15. Now, following that, they won five games in a row and they were sitting at 11 and eight in sixth place. And I think people almost had locked the Giants into a, a final spot, but they have dropped their last two games to Sydney and then Adelaide away from home. Um, and so they dropped to 10th just below us. So I was watching the live ladder very closely uh, when they were playing Adelaide to see, you know, if they would finish above or below us. Not that it really means much heading into this week. After this, they've got a game against the Rampaging Carlton at, at Marvel Stadium. So, you know, this is an absolute must win for them to even, you know, give themselves a chance of being uh, in September action. So if we look at them in terms of ball movement, they're going at 1.3 kicks per handball. And that's actually the second lowest of any side in the comp. When you break that down between their wins and their losses, uh, their, their ratio jumps to 1.39 in their wins. So they, they kick the ball more in their wins, whilst in their losses, that drops to 1.2. So to me, that suggests pressure on the ball carrier is a key component to restricting the Giants. Now, look, that's a common theme for most teams. But in terms of kick to handball ratio differences between wins and losses, only the Magpies and the Dockers have a bigger difference. So it seems that that pressure on the ball carrier really impacts them a lot more than it does other teams. But that also means because they do handball it so much, they are a low, low marking side. They only take 85 a game. But that also means that they're able to restrict their opponent's ability to take marks. So their opponents only take 84 a game. However, they have struggled with contested marking. They have the 16th worst differential in the comp there. So teams have been able to get them in the air. Yeah, what's interesting there, mate, is Sam Taylor, their key defender, ranks seventh in the AFL for contested marks per game. So, uh, you know, you don't all that often see key defenders taking a lot of contested marks because they're in a contested situation. They're normally trying to spoil the ball, but he he's one that backs himself into to read it and mark it. And then Jesse Hogan down the other end in their forward line, he he ranks 20th in the AFL for contested marks a game. So they've got two guys who are who are really, really effective at it, but then it drops down to Callum Brown, who's ranked 93rd. So yeah, you, you touched on there, a low contested marking team but they also have you know, two guys taking a, a fair number of them. Uh, we ourselves don't have a player in the top 48, but we then have six ranked between 49 and, and 70. So we are getting a bit more of a spread uh, in compared to, to GWS. The other thing that I found interesting is in their losses, they concede 91 marks a game. They concede 78 in their wins. Port rank 18th with 81 marks a game and took 105 marks last week in their win against the Giants. So they they really did look to control the ball uh, and 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 not give it back once they had it. 
when the Saints beat them back in round 10, they took 113 marks to the Giants, 62. So, you know, those two games, minus 28 differential and minus 51 differential against St. Kilda, are the two biggest marking differentials of the season for GWS. Yeah, well, look, so far this season, they've been really effective at generating inside 50. So they average 55 a game, which is the fourth best in the competition, but they don't restrict inside 50. So they they also concede 55 a game. So rank 15 of the comp. So, you know, they're allowing their opposition as much uh, ball inside 50 as they're generating themselves. They're not really getting an advantage there. They're 13th for both forward 50 efficiency and in conceding shots on goal. So meaning they've struggled to score when they get it inside and they concede more than most sides do when the opposition take it in. And then another area they struggle this year is in clearances. They have negative differentials for both centre and stoppage clearances. So 16th for centre clearance differential and 13th for stoppage clearance. Now Essendon is 10th for centre and 12th for stoppage there. To give you a bit of perspective, um, the contested possession numbers are also low, um, but they are the second best tackling side in terms of differential in the comp. So they're plus seven for tackles, which is just behind where Collingwood are at. So the one thing that's really kept them going this season and it has put them in a position to win finals is their intercept game. You mentioned Sam Taylor. Um, he's been a key part of that, but just generally they rank fifth in terms of generating intercepts at a better rate than their opposition. And their overall differential of plus 4.5 in wins is only bettered by Sydney and Hawthorne in matches that they've won. So when they've really got on top of their intercept game, they've really dominated in that area. And that's that's been a crucial way that they've won games. So it's really important where you can maintain possession. And, you know, that last kick inside 50 is going to be really important this week for success. Um, and just finally, you know, uh, games at the showgrounds, uh, the last six trips to Western Sydney, um, we've only won once and that was back in 2018. And the average margin in those uh, five losses is 30 points. Yeah, well, um, way to bring the the mood down there with that one, mate. But um, in terms of their scoring profile, they average fifty points a game from turnover and concede forty seven. So not a huge differential there. But but as you said, when they win and their intercept game is on song, they they use that to slingshot scores. They do have a bias towards forward half turnovers, scoring twenty eight points compared to twenty two points from defensive half turnovers, and a bit of a similar theme in in turnover scores against twenty five points from forward half turnovers against them, and and twenty two in the defensive. Half. They score more from stoppage than they can see. They're plus 3.5 at stoppage scores, whereas we're minus 7.5 thanks to the hiding last week, although we were minus 5.9 um, going into that game. So uh, scores in stoppage generally hasn't been huge for us um, throughout the season. They're minus 2.8 points a game from kick ins, we're at plus one, and they're minus 3.2 points per game from center clearances. We're at plus 3.3. So there's a couple of parts of the game there where we might have an opportunity to to get some ascendancy. Um, But before we look into this week, mate, let's have a a quick look at, um, well, sorry, moving into this week, I should say, let's have a quick look at selection. Yeah. So uh, selection came out and, you know, I think that seems to be a habit this day, everyone erupted because it didn't go the way that they, they'd they hoped. But Essendon, you know, brought back two really important players in in Jake Stringer and Sam Draper. Uh, out's gone Kane Baldwin and Nick Bryan. Um, and then Will Snelling, the sub, is, is also out there. But uh, Will Snelling and Baldwin are, are in the emergencies to go with uh, Jai Caldwell and Will Setterfield. Um, 
I'm surprised not to see one of Caldwell and Setterfield back as well, but you know, met, there's also the possibility of a late change, which we've been, had a habit to do there. Um, great to see Stringer and, and Draper back. This will actually be Stringer's 100th game as a bomber, so great effort from him after playing his first 89 games as, as a dog. Um, unfortunately for Brian and Baldwin, obviously, these players have come back into the side. Those players have done little wrong themselves. Um, I know people are especially upset about Baldwin missing out. What are your thoughts, Jono? Yeah, look, I think the guys that got dropped can consider themselves unlucky. They they had, you know, they, they played some good games last week and, you know, Baldwin showed some really positive signs. Nick Bryan, uh, you know, in his spell that he's had while Draper's been out, I think is, you know, he's had some ups and downs, but but overall shown that he's progressing. And, um, I, you know, Snelling didn't get a, a huge opportunity coming, um, coming on a sub. But, yeah, I, I guess... Cox's flexibility and extra height probably won out over Baldwin in the end. I think, you know, Lachlan Keefe at, at 204 centimetres will be Giants' second ruck and, and he'll go and play forward at times as well. I'm assuming Laverde and, and BZT take Hogan and Riccardi. And uh, look, I think if we're brutally honest on Baldwin, he had a really good game last week against Tristan Cherry, who isn't the capability of these two guys. Uh, we did see early in the season up in Brisbane when when Baldwin had to play on on the likes of, of Danaher, uh, et cetera, that, that he, w- he was taken apart and, and he did lose his, his one-on-one battle. So, uh, you know, I think we're, we've got a game that, that we're, we're trying to win here. Clearly, we've picked a team to to win to keep our season alive and, and try and play in finals. And I think um, Laverde and BZT are, are the obvious options with who we've got available to us to take those two matchups. Kellen Brown's one that that might have been a matchup for Baldwin. He's a big boy. He's a Category B rookie from Ireland back in 2019. He, he came into this season having only played the 10 games. He's played 14 games this season for, for 14 goals. But he, you know, despite being the best part of 100 kilos, he's he's only again quote unquote 188 centimeters, and I think he's a matchup that, uh, you know, Dyson Heppel might get the job there. He can probably read read the ball in air and, and intercept on him and 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 do a good job. But I, I think he's also a matchup that Mason Redmond might quite enjoy. You know, he can he can play a little bit taller, Mason, uh, and I think he's he's one that he can expose the other way. Brown's a, a really really good athlete. He's powerful, but. We know Redmond can be smart moving up the ground on transition. And I think if that matchup did play out that way, it could really work in our favour and allow Redmond to, to be really aggressive and attacking. The, the other thing I think, you know, just to sort of close it out, I, I like most fans, have, have been a bit confused by selection in, in recent weeks. But I have to admit, less so this week, we've, we've brought in two guys that let's assume that they're fit and, and ready to go that, that we just had to bring in. Briggs is just about the most informed ruckman in the comp at the moment. He's fourth in the AFL for score launches per game. When he gets his hands on it, 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 you know, he's giving it to their mids and he's giving them a good ride. He's also 14th in the AFL for clearances and the number one ruckman for ranked ruckman for clearances. So I think Draper's physical presence is going to be really important. I just don't think Brian's got that in his game just yet to to take on Briggs or or even Keith when he goes into the ruck. And then I think structurally Stringer helps make our forward line function better. He he takes a good opponent. He's prepared to lead into wide pockets in the fifty, which uh, our other forwards in right and Langford aren't all that often prepared to do. Langford's getting better at it, I have to admit, but. Stringer is basically just happy to get his hands on the ball anywhere and, and also happy to lead into dead parts of the ground just to take a defender away. So, um, so yeah, I, I think he really helps out in that regard. And he also leads us for tackles inside 50, which, to be fair, is probably a bit of an indictment on some of his teammates, but but also a tick for the work that he's been doing as a team player this season. I would have liked to have seen Setterfield come in and, and give us some more size through the midfield, but 
you know, I think at least we have the option with Stringer back to use him in through the midfield at times and, and Perkins obviously as well. Yeah. Well, look, let's have a quick look at GWS's changes. So they've, they've brought ben, Brent Daniels and, and Toby Bedford in. Uh, out goes their sub from last week, Jacob Wurr. Um, Nick Haynes has a bit of an illness and he's out. And then Toby McMullen is also out. Uh, their emergencies are McMullen, Ware, Angwin and Flynn. Um, a couple of handy ins for the Giants, but also a fairly significant out in Haynes. How do you see their selection this week? Yeah, they bring back two small forwards that have had really good seasons and been a really important part of their setup. Toby Bedford's had the fifth most inside 50 tackles in the AFL this season, and he's their number one player for tackles per game. Brent Daniels is, is 39th for inside 50 tackles and kicked 20 goals for the season. Bedford, just the eight in his 14 games. But I think Bedford's a player that someone like Guelphie could take a close look at in the offseason and, and aim to get his level of output and consistency through games because he's not... He's not kicking a lot of goals, 8 in 14. It's not a massive number, but he's been really influential in the way that he he consistently ap- applies pressure and, and tackles. And, and I don't think Guelphie, for his improvements, has been able to find a way to do that at consistent levels yet. You know, we, last week, uh, I think for me, was a bit of a typical Matt Guelphie game where he was he was out of the game for a lot and then had a really good quarter, uh, whereas, whereas Bedford's a, a pretty consistent four-quarter player and, and finds a way to get involved throughout. Nick Haynes is a is a loss for them. Um, you know, they lose some drive from halfback. He's their number two for intercept marks behind Sam Taylor. Um, Sam Taylor's second in the AFL for intercept marks just just quietly. He's having a, a ripping season. Uh, but you know, they've they've got some other options there given, you know, they've got Whitfield and coming and Ash and the likes in the team. So, you know, it's not like they're without um those rebounding options. Uh where could be sub again, given Daniels and Bedford are in the twenty two. I can't see it being Toby McMullen who uh, you know, he's the son, of course, of Ian McMullen, who pl- uh, played at Essendon and and, um, and Collingwood. And then Ryan Agman- Angwin, I should say, is a medium-sized utility who, you know, is probably a decent sub-option given that he can play forward, back, or, or even through the midfield. And then Matt Flynn, their, their final emergency is a ruckman who you'd imagine is just there as an emergency as cover rather than being a, a genuine sub-option. Yeah. Well, look, before we turn our attention to what Essendon need to do, let's look at what happened for the Giants last game. And they suffered quite a big defeat to Port Adelaide um, away from, well, GWS were away from home. So Port 21-10-136 defeated the Giants 13-7-85. Um, it was their second loss in their, in a row for the Giants. Um, a seven goal to three opening quarter really set the tone for the power in a match that the power ended up running out 51 point winners. So look, the Giants did, win contested possession by 10, but they're, they're really inefficient going forward. They, could, they had five more turnovers and they conceded 14 more inside 50s and, and that allowed Port to go at an above season average of 52% efficiency inside 50. And it's something we touched on earlier, the Giants, and despite having, you know, such a good defender in, in Sam Taylor there, you know, they, they do get scored against fairly easily for the in terms of the entries that they concede. Um, Jake Riccardi was a standout for the Giants with four goals and, and then the Greens, uh, Toby and Tom kicked two each and, and then Tom also led the way for them with 31 disposals and four clearances. Uh, I did note um, Caniglio did seem to be restricted somewhat by Port. He's, he's had a big impact in their wins this season, but he only had 19 disposals, and that's down from a season average of 28. Yeah, I mentioned last week that I gave myself a bit of a football embargo last weekend or, or the weekend before uh, the, the West Coast game weekend uh, and didn't watch a lot of footy. I, I lifted that this weekend, the weekend just gone and, and watched a fair bit, including this game. Uh, you touched on it. Port really did set up the win in the first quarter. 
If you go back to our game against GWS in round four, it wasn't too dissimilar. We had 10 scoring shots, kicking two goals eight in that first quarter to GWS four goals straight, which kept them in the game. Port had 10 scoring shots, but managed to kick seven goals three to GWS three goals straight. So, yeah, it, it was a game in in round four that we were able to take the ball forward from the contest, intercept on the way out. We, we intercepted five times in our forward half, but weren't able to kick a goal. Port kicked five goals uh, five goals, one for the game from forward half or forward 50 intercepts to to go with four goals, three from centre clearances. So, you know, there, there were some elements of that game, uh, Port Adelaide's game against the Giants, that was really similar to how we went about it in round four. Port just did a much better job than we did in, in converting that into to scores on the scoreboard or goals on the scoreboard, I should say. Yeah. Well, look, let's turn our attention to, to Saturday afternoon. And look, it's a cliche to say this, but I, I think I did hear Josh Kelly uh, mentioned this in, in a media conference for GWS that it, it's really an elimination final for, for both clubs, um, given that a loss in this match would make it only, you know, a, a very slight mathematical possibility that that the loser would make the finals. Um, the Giants have the home ground advantage, which has been pretty good for them over the years against us. Uh, how big is that going into the game? Yeah, you wouldn't expect that there'd be a huge crowd factor, would you? It's not like going to the Adelaide Oval and, and playing Port or the Crows or, or over to Subiaco when... The Eagles are up and about. Um, our fans are incredible. They're all around Australia. They travel. It, it wouldn't surprise me if there's more Essendon support there than Giants support. But obviously, it's a ground that they train on and and they're there all the time. And and it's not their their home base necessarily, but but they're much more familiar with it than than we are. So you'd think it'd give them some sort of an advantage. But that said, they're three wins and four losses at the showgrounds this season. They lost to the Swans. There in their last home game, um, they lost to Richmond, St Kilda and Carlton um, throughout the season. And, and then their wins have come against Hawthorne, Fremantle and Adelaide all the way back in round one. So it's not like it's been a, a fortress for them this year. So, yeah, I, I don't see any reason, despite our own average performances there in the past, that we can't go there and, and think we give ourselves a really good chance of winning. Yeah, well, just to sort of touch back on something we spoke a lot about earlier in the show. We've spoken a lot about the ability of defenders to win contests earlier in the season. If you, if you average out uh, obviously defenders' defensive loss rate, they have the fourth best percentage in terms of winning contests. Only Brisbane, Richmond and Collingwood have better percentages. So it really suggests to me that we've got to find a way to open up the forward line to allow for leading players. And it's, you know, it's sort of builds into what we spoke about with the Giants struggling to contain teams when they actually do enter 50. But, you know, creating space is something we have really struggled with over the past few weeks um, with the changing game style to that really forward press style. What do you think is the best way we can open up that that forward line to, to get as many goal-scoring opportunities as we can? Yeah, I think personnel plays a part, mate. We'll touch on Stringer and his impact in the final thoughts. But to be honest, it's really not something in terms of the context of Essendon and our development moving forward that I'm I'm all that worried about. I, I think, you know, the, the Giants averaged 82 points a game in the last three weeks. We've averaged 86 points a game. So we're doing enough to kick a, a winning score. I think we kicked all but 100 points against the Swans a couple of weeks ago who were who were in good form. So I I'm not I'm not too concerned at all about what's happening with our, our forward mix or, or, or our ball movement and, and those parts of it. I think what's more important is that we're slowing down the way the ball comes out of our, our forward 50 and, and we're preventing fast transition and, and of ball movement. And, you know, that was okay against the Swans. We gave the ball up a lot in our own defensive half and, and did that way too often and allowed them to score on turnover. So it, it wasn't 
uh, our problem in that game wasn't that we were going inside 50 and they were going coast from coast. It was when the Swans were able to go inside 50, we were turning the ball over on, on the way back out. Our defense of transition was awful against West Coast. I have to, it was certainly the worst I've seen it this year and 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 among the worst I've seen in the last couple of years. It, it was just really bad and and we just went to sleep and we spoke about that last week. But it was much better against North Melbourne and and it was excellent against the Giants early in the season. So look, round round four was a long time ago, but I think that's the blueprint. We had eleven scoring shots. Um, three goals, eight from forward half turnovers in that game. We scored 65 points to 35 from turnover on the whole. And and because we did allow them, or because when we did allow them to go past halfway, it was often long kicks down the line that we turned over. If we can replicate something close to that this week, I mean, it's not a, a flick of the switch and, and it all comes back, but uh, the, the parts are there, I, I think, to be able to do it. We saw some better signs last week against North. And, um, yeah, if it's, it starts at the contest, if we can get our hands on it there, we can get the ball inside 50, then I think the rest will will largely fall into place and, and we'll be able to kick a winning score. Yeah. And finally, you know, what is, what's the matchups you're looking out for? Who's the, who's the key people to focus on for the Giants? Yeah, I think this is going to be a really tactical game, mate. I think there's going to be a lot of things happening on the whiteboard and, and the matchup board. I think magnets are going to be flying around everywhere and, and it's going to be one that we're probably not going to pick up all the nuances, unfortunately, watching it on the tally. Um, uh, GWS do have some real flexibility in their side. You know, we saw Toby Green go into the centre bounce a lot last week against Port and then and then push forward in a role similar to the to one that we've seen Jake Stringer play a fair bit of. They've got some guys that can play in in multiple positions. Yeah, Toby Green is one of those. Josh Kelly can play on a wing, he can play at half back, he can go through the midfield, midfield can play wing and, and half back. And and you know, they're players that are going to get a lot of attention from Don's fans leading into the game because they've heard us many times before. You know, then there's will they or won't they tag Merritt? They've done that in the past. Will they lock down on Hyde and Redmond as they did last year? Um, I know there's some queries on Hind, but I think what Hind playing does does mean that between him and Redmond, we we do have an attacking option from half back. If if they lock down on on one, then then it gives us a better chance of of the other one getting getting free and um and and having an impact. You know, I touched on Redmond earlier, but I think the other one that we can look to expose is Caniglio. Port put some work into him last week. He, he didn't have the impact that he has in previous games, but he's had a really good season and got back to some of his very best footy. He's ninth in the AFL for score involvements per game. He's averaging 1.1 shots at goal per game. He, he's had some accuracy issues. He, he hasn't quite converted all of his chances, but he's third for clearances behind Briggs and, and Tom Green at GWS. And I'd like to see Perkins the Perkins Stringer combination play a defensive role on him at clearance. I know that there's probably some temptation to to go to some others like Kelly or or Tom Green, but I think, you know, let's back in Darcy Parrish against Tom Tom Green to go head to head and, and win out. But um I think if those two can play a bit of a, a defensive role, get really physical on him. Um and then he's a player that I, I think likes to get forward of the footy a little bit and and probably a little bit too too early at times. We, we can't afford to play Russian roulette with it because if he does get forward and they win the contest, then he is going to hurt us. But he also doesn't get too far back defensively. A bit like what we saw Perkins do to, to Cripps um, earlier in the season, I think there's an opportunity here for those guys who are, are bigger bodies, they're strong in the contest, um, uh, they can stop Coniglio from having it all his own way, but then they're also good users of the ball and, and can make things happen when we go forward. So, um, so yeah, he, he's one that that I'd like us to put some time into and see if we can expose him. Yeah. 
But look, we're going to head into our, our final thought. And look, I, when I originally wrote this question earlier in the week, I thought we might have three or four players to, to choose from here, but it's only the two. Um, but which of the the ins and, you know, the speculation about the ins was, was pretty big with the players that potentially could come back. But with the two of Stringer and Draper, who are you expecting to have the biggest impact on the way we play going into this match? Yeah, I'm going to sit on the fence here, mate, um, but for different reasons. I think Draper can have the most impact on how GWS plays. If he can nullify Briggs, then it takes away a player who has been really important to their success. In in that run of, of wins that they put together, Briggs was playing really, really, really good footy. I spoke about his clearance work and his ability to launch scores. He's also third behind Tom Green and Josh Kelly for contested possessions. So I think Draper can really break up their inf- their offense by limiting the impact that, um, that, that Briggs has on the game. And then Stringer has the biggest impact on the way that we play and, and the way that we move the ball. We've improved at contested ball and clearance post by, which has improved the number of inside 50s we're having and, and reduced the number that we're conceding. We've had... 69, 55, and 60 inside 50s the last three weeks. If, if we have somewhere around that 60 mark this week, um, and let's aim for 60 again, then then we should be able to kick a winning score. We've talked about, um, uh, you know, the fact that we've played some weaker opposition the last two weeks, but, you know, the Giants are 14th for clearance differential. They're 10th in the comp for inside 50 differential and 12th for contested position differential. So we're not playing against a, a team who is, is elite in those areas. There's no reason why we can't, aim to, to win in each of those those parts of the game. And, and if we do that and we get a positive in, in those outputs, then I think Stringer helps to open up our forward line and helps to create more scoring opportunities for us. And, and we should see our, our score efficiency per inside 50 improve on, on what it's been in recent weeks. Thanks for that, mate. And I hope the splinters uh, aren't too embedded too deep there after sitting on the fence there. But um, yeah, I think both are going to have a major impact if, if they can perform anywhere near their best there. Well, that'll see us out for this evening. Another great show from you as always, Jono. Thanks for all the time you put into this. I'm sure the listeners all appreciate it. Any final words from you? No, likewise to you, mate. Thanks for all the research that you did this week. It was um, good to to see some snippets as it, uh, or snippets of it, I should say, as you're putting it together throughout the week. So, yeah, thanks once again to everyone who's reached out and, and contacted and asked questions and and been involved. Um, the the Don the Stat community really, really is something special, and um, yeah, I know we're both really proud of it, and, and we're really grateful for for the input that from everyone that contributes. But yeah, let's. Um, Let's have a good weekend, mate, and looking forward to to watching the Dons on Saturday. Yeah, well said. Stay safe, everyone, and go Dons.